Welcome to episode one proper of Oh Brother, What Are We Watching? Two brothers discuss pop culture with a geeky bent, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Chris. How's it going, Chris? Very well, Steve. How are you? I'm very well. And today we're talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And yeah. not just in general for the whole thing. We set each other a task at the end of the our first preview episode, episode zero. And we're going to talk about the first episode and the last episode. Uh, but more generally, we're going to talk about uh, our memories of this show and, and how uh, re-watching it has brought those again to the fore, as well as the pilot and the finale. Uh, maybe how those thoughts have changed uh, since watching it. And then at the end, I think, Chris, you're going to set me an assignment for our next podcast. Oh, yeah. I've got an assignment for you. So, Chris, let's turn it over to you now and, and tell me about growing up with Buffy. Because that's <laughs> something that you and I shared growing up. And that one of the reasons why I picked it was his 20th anniversary this year. So we're, we're very much on topic. You and I grew up with Buffy. It was one of our first shared passions. It was. It was. Um, so you you started... You started with Buffy first, and I I came along later. So I think you had watched season four. I think you were watching on TV, possibly. Um, and it was as you were watching season five. Something that was actually a bit of a running theme for us actually was when you were watching something that I claimed I wasn't into. I would just sit there quietly while you were watching it and and pretend like I wasn't, but I actually actually totally was. You just kind of inserted yourself into the action, is what you did, Chris. Exactly. And so it was, you were concurrently watching season two of Angel and season five of Buffy. Um, and yeah, by the sort of, by sort of midway through those seasons, I was sort of fully fledged, like, you're not allowed to watch it without me. And let's make a thing of it every Friday. Was it Friday night? I have a feeling it was Friday night. It was something like that. But do you remember watching season one with me? I do. So that was a little... <laughs> Prepare, prepare to feel, uh, prepare to feel old. But uh, you had made a big deal out of buying a DVD player, and you spent a gross amount of money buying one. <laughs> it was a good deal at the time. I tell you what, it was a good deal at the time, and I got Gladiator, um, and two other random films. I can't actually remember right now off the top of my head. It was Gods and Monsters and Three Kings. So there's this freakish memory come to the fore. Right off the bat, episode one, three minutes in, <laughs> bam, there it goes. Yeah, so you, you'd you bought those three films, and I remember you saying, like, oh, they're a bit heavy going. Because <laughs> they weren't exactly, you know, light-hearted comedies or anything. And you were like, I kind of, you know, want something a bit, you know, a bit, a bit easier going. And I, I, yeah, I think, suggested that you maybe get Buffy, and we watched it from the start, because ne- neither of us had seen the first season, I don't think. That's right, and we um, bought. I bought the the DVDs for season one that came very quickly, uh, from one of the first kind of multi regional sellers of DVDs, and it came with. Do you remember what it came with? It came with a snack, popcorn, toffee popcorn. It was chocolate popcorn. I had never had microwavable popcorn oh, that was gets, not yeah. toffee or salt, and it was chocolate. And I think I actually burnt it, and I was also suffering. Yes, that was that. You weren't. Um, you weren't very good at doing terrible, popcorn. Terrible. It's, it's microwave, microwave. Just buying a bag. Like, why do I need to worst. cook it? Anyway, I have to ask now, Chris. Have you rewatched Welcome to the Hellmouth? What were your initial thoughts on the episode rewatching it after well, twenty years since the initial air date? Yeah, twenty years on. Um, 
So, yeah. So I have. I, I've watched Welcome to the Hellmouth. I also watched uh, Chosen. I've just, I've written down, like, literally just a bunch of random observations. Would you like me to just go through them and you can comment on them as you please? Well, that sounds rather unstructured for what we want to talk about, Chris, but but, but absolutely. I mean, what, what stuck out to you either thematically or just elements you liked or disliked? I don't think we need to go through blow by blow, like, the plot. Although I have got, I'm not kidding here, but six or seven pages of notes. <laughs> to me, right back to film class sitting there today watching both these episodes back to back. I didn't do anything on the editing. What, what did you make of the mise-en-scene? The mise-en-scene was very uh, good because it reminded good? me of California in high school. I was kind of hit. The first thing I noticed was the incidental music. That's one of the th- one, that's one of the things that actually I think creates one of the starkest contrasts with watching the first and last episode. Um, it's so nineties and just I I don't know how else to describe it, but it feels like a lot of other things that were around at that time, like I don't know, charmed and you know all sorts of inferior shit like that. <laughs> What I've got down here is dark school music starts immediately playing on your expectations. Um, which is true. And of course, it's classic Joss because that's what he does. You know, you see a, a girl and a kind of sleazy looking guy. And obviously your first assumption is, you know, you know, you know where this is going. He's going to be the bad guy. And then she kills him. And our expectations are flipped. And that's kind of what that's kind of Joss's wheelhouse. The guy, the sleazy guy, um, who is actually the first person who obviously physically appears on screen. He's the first person we see uh, in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer world. Do you know who that is? I do, and I've got a whole note about it. So it's Carmine <laughs> Giovanazzo, I think Giovanazzo how you, how you from... pronounce it. <laughs> the honour of the first ever victim in the show to Julie Benz's Darla, who would of course become a, a major recurring character of both, both seasons, but how do you, we know Carmine Giovinazzo, apart from this incident, Chris, you're going to know it's Shasta McNasty, our, our little-known, <laughs> pretty terrible sitcom, probably more famous for having Vern Troyer and Jake uh, Busey in it. Yeah, yeah, Gary Busey's talented brother, I presume. Son? Brother? I don't actually I, know. I didn't do the research on Jake Busey. That can't be his son! No, but yeah, from Shasta McNasty, which just floored me, because that is... Like even in this age of of you know nothing nothing is unavailable on the internet, I cannot find almost any trace of that show. It's as if it didn't exist. Consigned to the dustbin of 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 history, Chris. I don't think it was particularly good at the time. I remember watching it. I don't remember it being particularly mm. any good. But we would watch anything that was on television back then, which is why we're doing this podcast. I I things I wish I could watch it again to determine if it actually was like a hidden gem and it was really really funny or if it was just something that's on late at night and you don't really think about it and he's also the guy from CSI New York um who puts on like the Italian American accent all the time. Ah, well he's called Carmine so he must be, right? Yeah, so I mean I I say he puts it on it's probably his accent. Um that's our first that's our first victim. He's our first guy. Um the theme tune obviously never it, it never changes entirely of course but as you probably noticed it's a very different recording in the first season uh and i think i think it doesn't change until about halfway through the second season um but it actually really fits with the feeling of of the first episode because it's very kind of it feels kind of garage band um 
you know, it feels like it's quite literally just been like recorded in Joss's basement or something. Yeah, I mean, I I love the. I mean, we're, we're skipping on for maybe talking sequentially here, but I I I actually really enjoyed going back and watching the first ever episode of Buffy again. It brought not only for for memories and how you and I grew up together, Chris, but but more generally, I thought it was a cracking, tight forty-five minute introduction to this universe. Within um, eleven minutes, we are introduced to all the major characters that would feature for seven years, mm-hmm. um, not excluding, you know, um, some of the recurring characters. But um, and you get like Jesse, like <laughs> poor Jess. Oh, poor Jesse. Like you know, apparently the story goes that Joss Whedon wanted um, to put yeah. uh, the art actor Eric Balfour, who played Jesse, uh, in the credits. And to yeah. give away that that no one was safe, which is a very joss thing to do, of course. But they they couldn't for whatever reason, maybe money. And in the end, he was just a guest star who, yeah. very obviously, was going to die, uh, unfortunately. Or actually, I don't think we even see at the end of this episode what happens to him, do we? Because he he leads away. No, it's not until uh, it's not until the next episode, because um, it to jump right to the end ends with a classic to be continued that's right but i do i just don't love the sense of it i mean everything's here the bronze the um the californian punk pop punk rock um that that feeling of going back to school and everything and and watching the show and and thinking you know these are teenagers i guess um with but with with that overlay of of supernatural on top um, it was just so much fun. Yeah, uh, just go back onto it. It's like wearing wearing a warm jumper or something. But it's something I definitely want to talk about in at the start of this episode. Can we talk about Xander's terrible skateboarding? That's a note. Um, my question was, does he ever skate again? I don't know if he does, but it, it must have been really hard for them to accomplish because it is terrible. He's like, pardon me, get out of the way. And he's not moving anywhere. He's on a straight line. There are tons of people in front of him, except for in the reverse shot where there are nobody in front of him. Yeah. And he only very yeah. subtly somehow goes up a stair to <laughs> to hit the railing <laughs> when he's staring it's... at Buffy. He can't stop that thing. I think I could stop a skateboard. Probably. I mean, it's not. It's probably not the most accomplished part of the pilot. Which, as you say, I think it just to talk briefly. Like, I do love the, I do love the structure of it, and I do love that it doesn't feel too piloty. What is very good is a lot of the characters right away feel like like uh, having watched the show. I I know this is them right from the get go. You know the, the characters were kind of nailed down, and I feel a lot of the actors kind of had had a really good feel for their character from from the word go. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this watch the first episode, watch the last episode thing with a few shows is that's very rarely the case. And I think if you watch a lot of TV shows, you'll be like, wow, like. You know, if you watch, you know, Ross in Friends from the first episode to the last episode, he's unrecognizable. He's an entirely different kind of character. Um, was these guys, aside from Xander's terrible skating, uh, which I'm very glad they they sort of did away with? Yeah, you know, pretty much, pretty much they're they're on point. Do you agree? I absolutely agree. Like all the characters are there from day one, even though in in this episode they're kind of broad strokes. But yeah. Willow is extremely smart nerd. Um, she comes across here as a plain Jane, which she wouldn't be, of course, as the show goes on. But Xander can't study. He's really really friendly, but he's not terribly bright. Um, obviously, Buffy has the biggest arc, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. Um, Giles is introduced, and 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 even Angel. Even Darla, of course, is a recurring character, and they're all pretty much yeah. there. I mean, you, there, there are cosmetic differences, clothes, for example, um, 
one note I have on Angel is shiny, shiny black jacket. Like, the shiniest black jacket. I've got that, yeah, shiny velvet. I think he just came back <laughs> from singing in a club, Chris. <laughs> he's, he's, he's been to see Lorne, he's had a quick sing, and, and now he's with us. It's terrible. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you knew the fashion was going to be a big thing to compare between the two episodes. Um, you know, I've made a note that Giles is covered in tweed. Yeah. Um, which is a little bit route one for me. You know, the librarian, the English guy, you know, with the big round glasses and whatnot. Um, but, I mean, that's kind of part of what I think Giles wanted to create. It's like, look at all these archetypes, but they're not what you expect. Um so you know obviously he's painted them in a certain way to kind of play on your expectations likewise obviously Buffy is like with the ridiculously short skirts and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely no that's it's a huge thing of this episode is the playing up of expectations both yeah. on screen and also off thematically um, which, is, which is as you said so Buffy's supposed to be the teenager who wears the short skirts and everything but she has this mm-hmm. immense weight of responsibility on her which we then find out is because she's a slayer which is very interesting of course that continues for the seven years and is very evident by the time they get to the last episode um but of course we also meet our first uh, principal fluty in this episode and i love principal fluty <laughs> i i love it i had to say actually um really sitting down and watching because i've never done this before you know trying to analyze something beyond just sitting and watching and enjoying it um and i've watched buffy so many times probably the last few times i've watched the, the pilot I haven't really been watching. You know, I've probably been doing other things. Um, and I really got to give it up. I love the physical comedy um, of of Principal Flutie. And like, again, it's just constantly, uh, the conversation just keeps taking these turns where you just, you, you think you understand where he's going and then he just does a complete U-turn. Um, but where he rips up her, her, you know, record, whatever it is, her permanent record. And says it's a fresh start, and then he immediately sets about trying to tape it back together again. <laughs> exactly, and that absolutely exactly. slayed me. I've never noticed that before, and I just thought that was a really nice little touch. Um, uh, it, well, I, I, met, I think I, know, I noticed the, the the taping up before in the past, but it was it was it was a great scene again. They set up uh, Buffy's mm-hmm. backstory quickly, and again, it's it's an episode that has to accomplish a lot in forty five minutes. And they do it really well within the construct of the first day of school, which is something that we've all well experienced. We've all been through and we've seen many times on TV, but they do it, I think they do it uh, very well. Yeah. And of course, considering this is 20 years old, that they did it with a freshness and, and certainly, you know, Whedon's one-liners yeah. you know, shine through, sometimes with some very odd um, terminology. Um, and we'll probably get to some of those, but uh, at this point, I noticed Xander's see-through shirt. Oh, so Xander's yeah. never, Xander's never known as the king of fashion at the best of times. None more so than by the end of this um, series. No. But in the pilot, he's wearing this. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. You can actually see through to his vest. It's super thin, and it's very odd choice. But it was just fun to note, rather than any sort of um, character leaning. It was just very odd to see a grown man in a see-through shirt like that, especially when he's supposed to be a teenager. Yeah, and he wears California. his little necklacey medallion thing that I wasn't too comfortable with. I know he I, he does have that for quite a while, but uh, nope, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. <laughs> and how on thankfully, display it is. Thankfully, he goes to the more normal Chris uh, check shirts yeah. and baggy pants. 
um, which she would then wear for another seven years, oh, God, except for maybe a quick dalliance with numbers and t-shirts. Yeah, I did but... want to make a special mention as well of Charisma Carpenter, who is introduced in this episode as Cordelia. Of course, we haven't talked about Cordelia uh, She yet. just crushes it for me. Like like I said, ev- everyone can nails down their character really quickly, but she she is just so in it already. And, and you know, it just... She just has a real energy about her and very, very funny, but, you know, there's a confidence by the way that she portrays her character that none of the others seem to have. And again, like her character does not really alter. I think, I think in many ways, Chris, that's because, that's because she has the easiest role, Mm. right? So she's the, she's the bully. There's not much, in this episode anyway, there's not much uh, beneath the surface for her. She's just got to be friendly, but only be friendly to Buffy and be mean to everyone else and, yeah. and set up the action, really. You know, you mentioned, like, the Joss one-liners uh, coming through. And and that's definitely true, and there's some some very good ones in the first episode. Um, but I also noticed there is a, just a feeling like they're not quite there yet. Um, no. And especially comparing it comparing it to the to Chosen, you know, which is obviously right at the end of... of the run of Buffy where everything just feels a lot more comfortable and you know those same kind of one-liners just come out a lot more smoothly because the actors are more practiced at delivering them you know Joss has been writing them for however many years by that point presumably seven you're, you're right I mean end of act one they find the body yeah. um our friend Carmine from before he falls out of the locker as the two girls yeah. are talking about pass Negley and all these other little supposed to be California one-liners. And... Yeah, I, I made a little note on Cali speak. Uh, yeah, Cali exactly. Speak in the locker room for forty-five minutes. They pack a ton of yeah. Cali speak into this. My favorite being the Wiggins. It gives me the Wiggins. <laughs> I think that comes up. This is a, a Buffy staple. It is a Buffy That's staple. That's right through. I think the first three or four seasons, Wiggins is uh, certainly first three. It's a very common turn of phrase around Sunnydale way. What really comes across here as well is. When Buffy goes to the library, well, two things come across for me. So Buffy goes to the library. She goes to meet um, Giles. Uh, well, she meets Giles for the first time. Um, and again, playing up on your expectations, she goes into the quiet library. It's completely empty. Throws open the door and shouts out "Hello!" Yeah. as if she's in some sort of haunted house. The music's going and everything, and you think she's going to get attacked. My question is, why does anyone call out "Hello" in a school library? Mm. Yeah, there's an occasional moment of. You know, yeah, realism. Why did you actually do that? <laughs> you know, that's that's normally the sort of thing that you you comment on. You know, um, a bit odd. You know, but actually, in the second turn in the library, kind of um, gives a good example of what I'm talking about with how the I don't know if it's the writing or the delivery just wasn't quite there yet. Um, but so Buffy goes in, and she has this big tirade at Giles about how she just wants to have a normal life and. She didn't want any of this and blah, blah, blah. Just after uh, our good friend Carmine has been exposed. He's definitely not exposed, Chris. Otherwise, this would be a very different podcast about children. <laughs> very different. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, first of all, there's a very sort of weedy funny moment where, you know, you know, Giles just sort of kind of calls it out and he says, well, why have you come here just to tell me that you, you're not interested? Like, why would you even do that? And she kind of has that sort of stuttery well i i don't know but i am and i'm telling you and you've been told and that feels very joss and that feels very like the sort of stuff that that, that sort of makes the show is the kind of the language of the show um 
but then she has this line where she just kind of it just felt kind of stilted where she she says something and then she says something else and then she just kind of says to herself like why am i still talking and it's just the way she delivered it just really stuck out to me i was like oh that doesn't feel quite right um yeah. yeah, it was early. It was early days, and I think um, it was early days, and that's that's fine. It's expected from a first episode. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely no. But, but what what really came across to me, the second thing that came across to me, in both the first and second library scenes, of course, is the theme that runs across not only the two episodes we're talking about, but the whole season, the whole series. Yeah, is Buffy struggling with the weight of responsibility, and that kind of develops differently into the finale, where it, it's a lot more about female empowerment and. I guess, um, a woman's role in the world, but we will get to that. But that certainly came across even from this first episode. So again, it, it packed in tons of stuff into this episode. The the language, the setting, the characters are all pretty much down pat. But also the central tenant of Buffy is not just she's here to fight people, but she's been given this responsibility, which she is trying to run away from. Yeah, and... And that she's struggling with it. Exactly. And, yeah, I mean, obviously the... You know, like you say, the whole tenet of the show always has been, you know, about female empowerment. You know that that comes across in in quite, I think, quite well in 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 the first episode. Um, you know, right down to the first scene being, you know, like we say, the the girl who we think is going to be the victim actually being the bad guy. Um, I certainly was expecting to actually find a much stronger uh, thematic link between that and the last episode, which is obviously all about the female empowerment pretty much um but yeah as you say it's more focused on buffy and what her journey's pretty much going to be through the whole show of accepting responsibility for what she has to do and kind of coming to terms with what that that means for her and her life and that was very easy for us to get into well we weren't teenage girls but as no, teenagers growing up which was you're accepting your place in the world as you grow up you're you're awkward you're becoming an adult um and you can relate to that in the character and i think that's why it sticks with you you know it's not just about the vampires and and the the mythos but you, the 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 real human drama as well uh, it comes across very well and again it's set up for the rest of it um and i, I do find that actually in the finale well we'll talk to that in a bit but i think uh, if we're moving on something that, that really stuck out to me you know when when she's prepping for the bronze and she talks to we already met Buffy's mum yeah or mom Joyce uh, earlier on but something that really I picked up in the first time when she was in the car but then especially when she was pr- uh, dressing herself for the bronze was did she come across to you as very new agey like some of her language was that just something that was very in back then because it seemed to me yeah like this was a woman who they were going to portray as like had read all the books and was very a new age parent. Yeah, that that stuck out to me. Like, I've read the books. I know that this is important to you. Um, that was a huge trope at that kind of time uh, in the nineties. I I can I can't remember too many specific examples except for maybe like Clarissa explains it all or something like that from the sort of earlier nineties. But yeah, I can just I, I it brings to mind a ton of different kind of TV shows where there was a mum who like she claims she claims to be listening. You know, I'm listening. I get it. I've read the books. I know what you're going through, but is actually never listening. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and they do that again later in the show with Willow's mum as well. You know, she's like, I, I hear you. You know, Doctor Finkelstein said this is exactly what you're going to be going through. I get it. I'm hearing you, but is of, of course not really listening. But yeah, I mean, I suppose Joyce is kind of new agey. You know, she has all those like, 
you know, she works at the museum. She she runs an art gallery. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. It's not even a museum. It's an art gallery, and it's all look at these wonderful fertility statues and voodoo masks and things like that. You know, that are all scattered around the house. Um, you know, I guess we never really. It's it's not not until they decided to spoiler alert kill her off that. We Ooh. we got to know too much about her character, really. Like we now have to put asterisks up on iTunes. Spoilers, are, spoilers are included. Spoiler alert! I I don't think we can watch the first and last episode of a show without discussing spoilers, can we? Well, probably not. Yeah, so I I think just go whole hog. Um, but yeah, I think I think in season five we got to know Joyce a bit better. Um, but I think that was partly just as being a bit of a dick and being like, I want to make you really attached to this character before I wipe her out. Oh. Yes, that comes up. That comes up in the finale, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. But moving on as well, I want to talk about the introduction of Angel. So we've already talked about his awful shiny jacket, which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, probably out of all the characters and actors, probably for me, Boreanaz hadn't quite nailed down Angel yet. No, this that he um, kind of comes across. Yeah. Comes across a bit smarmy, and obviously Buffy doesn't quite like him, but finds him quite attractive but he certainly comes across um still yeah. maybe searching a bit for that character unlike later in the, the the run of course we see him right at the start of the finale um but it's a really great scene where they have them meet each other I, again i completely forgot about it so coming back to it was was terrific you know the again playing upon your expectations with the dark alley and the music and buffy f- supposedly finds herself trapped and then all of a sudden she's on top of a pole like a gymnast and kicks crap out of Angel. Yeah. Um, just a wonderful way to introduce um, the character to Angel, as it were. Yeah. And again, another playing of your expectations. Watching this 20 years ago, um, I imagine it was a real eye. I- yeah, and it takes it, it takes some of that power away from him, you know, like tall, dark, mysterious. And then she gets the jump on him. He's sort of floored. He's a bit taken aback. Um, I mean, actually, watching that scene really frustrated me. Oh, yeah. Um just because if he could do it now, if Joss could have another run at that scene now with the actors, you know, admittedly probably looking a bit older, but, you know, uh, you know, more into the characters as they became, I would really like to see that done again because it felt not necessarily cliched, but there was no, there wasn't much chemistry between them. Um, and, and given that they're about to get, you know, she, you know, she's supposed to have this instant attraction to him, and then they're supposed to go down. You know, they go down this road of, of you know, having a very passionate relationship, and that definitely comes through later in the show. But in this scene, I just, I, I don't feel any chemistry between them. His lines, yeah, like you say, he's, he's a little bit smarmy, he's a little bit quippy, and I think that's literally just it's Boreanaz just um, learning his character. You know, it's the yeah. first time the, the lines are written as they are, yeah. and certainly by the, the time we see him in the last episode, yeah. he is. Um, He's got that down pat. He's got his own show now, of course, and he's kind of learned that kind of deadpan, yeah. stoic humor that Angel's known for. You know, the that Spike often makes fun of him for. <laughs> that he's not really got any fun. Whereas in this one, he's kind of smiling and charming all the time. He looks like he's still unjealous a little bit with uh, with a soul, uh, without a soul, I should say, actually. Um, but of course, then they, they go off to the bronze, which again is another great moment. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about every single scene in here, but obviously, um, one thing that stood out for me, Chris, we're both Brits. Bovril. Giles mentions Bovril. That's big thing. Cup, cup of Bovril um, with a question mark and an exclamation point. <laughs> um, why is he drinking Bovril? Giles wouldn't drink Bovril. 
He drinks tea. I think, well, exactly. So but that was a very British reference, and I just appreciated it because of going to football matches with you and getting a pine bovril. Drinking a ton of bovril. I love, the thing is, <laughs> don't get me wrong, I love the reference. I do. Um, but it, it does feel a little misplaced, because... Giles is not the sort of man who would drink a cup of bovril. It's meat broth. Um, like Giles wouldn't eat meat. It's meat broth. broth. It's... <laughs> <laughs> no, he would. He wouldn't go to football games. He wouldn't drink bovril. He certainly wouldn't drink it in the home. It is literally beef stock. You just drink it, and I like it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't. It doesn't really go with like the snooty, sort of hoity-toity posh British guy uh, uh, theme of Giles. I also had to mention that Giles's voice. Uh, did you notice this between the two episodes? Is almost entirely different. No, I didn't. But I did notice at some points in this episode they did ADR some stuff in. So, oh, huge, and, and both that. actually. There was there's some very noticeable ADR in both. But um, I think because that's not quite uh, Anthony Stewart Head's accent. He's slightly more um, normal sounding, I guess. You know, he's a little rougher around the edges. <laughs> The two Brits talking about it. He's slightly more normal sounding as opposed to when he just sounds very super posh. The episode wraps up. I don't think we'll we'll talk too much about the, the end of it because, of course, it's a cliffhanger. Again, it's um it really sets up the, the show well. Um, obviously, by having a cliffhanger, it makes you want to come back for next week anyway. But having uh, Brian Thompson and Mark Metcalf in there at the end. Mark Metcalf is the master who is also... Love Mark Metcalf. <laughs> we love him for so many reasons. Um, but he was fantastic as the master as the, the, the season would go on. We only get to see a, a brief glimpse of him here. I, I do have to say that was the most noticeably cheap effect. Oh, but Chris, we haven't got he... to the finale yet, which is full of them. It is full of them, but I think, yeah, him, when he's rising out of the water, the, the sort of the blood, is very obvious. It's very... <laughs> And um, he looks like he looks like he's in miniature at one point. I think they get the perspective kind of off as well, um, and which is fine. Like the show, the show didn't have a gigantic budget, and you know I get that it's early doors, but oh, it just looked awful. It, it it did a little bit, but again, we're not here to pick holes or or have uh, snarky comments on the show. Definitely, um, we love it, and I love this episode. I I loved going back to it today. I love it. It's it's a it's a great it's a great start to the show and yeah it's 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 good I I like cheap and cheery anyway you know that you know um I don't oh you love cheap and cheery you haven't even got to I don't know yeah uh, yeah just wait just wait till your assignment <laughs> <laughs> just wait you'll unleash that and mean someday I'm sure and I'll have to watch it for the first yeah time no proper. I I have absolutely no problem with the with the the cheapo effects but uh, it was one of the more noticeable and it is one thing that I think is worth pointing out as time moves on and technology moves up. You know, we view you know I we viewed this on a TV that was maybe five times the size of the sort of TVs that people were watching Buffy on back when this first came out. What size is your TV? Five times the size. It's pretty fucking big. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I watched. I think I watched it on a respectable thirty-inch uh, TV maybe today. And I don't think perhaps five times bigger than what we watched this one. Well, mine's we mine's a little mine's a little TV. bigger than that to be fair, but it's. And and thinking about the resolution as well of the old CRT TVs versus what we look at now, like it was different back then. It, it was, and you you definitely notice it. Really, actually, not so much in these episodes, except for that um, dreadful scene with him coming out of the blood. Um, but I have noticed when I've watched Buffy 
um in in recent years especially when the brief time it was on netflix um uh, sarah michelle geller's stunt double looks very very different to her and in this in this episode they were so good at hiding that it was a stunt double they did a really good job of cutting it together so you never see her face um but like in the later seasons uh, two and three I'm thinking of specifically there's a lot of cutting away to a wide angle where you'd see Sarah Michelle Gellar and David Boreanaz as stunt doubles fighting um, right. or sword fighting or something like that and back then you couldn't tell or you could barely tell now it is so painfully obvious it's like watching the original Star Trek where there's this guy like a foot taller than William Shatner, um, just of a completely different build, just wearing the same T-shirt. And that's one of the vagaries of having these the technology and, and better TVs and whatever is, you do notice these little things and it kind of takes you out of the the show for a moment. But as you said, I didn't really notice that at all yeah. with the the pilot. Uh, Welcome to the Hellmouth. No, they did it. They did a fantastic job in the pilot. It's I think later seasons they maybe got a bit lazy with it and relied on you not being able to see from such a wide angle, I guess. Um, but you very much can now. Um, and heaven forfend if they ever do an HD sort of Blu-ray re-release, which I'm surprised they haven't yet. Well, there's a lot of issues with that, but but moving on to to the finale, Chris. So 1997, welcome to the Hellmouth. God, um, was it only yeah 20 years ago, 1997, and then seven years after that, or or six and a bit, whatever. So 2003, the original air date for Chosen. The final episode yeah. of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, written and directed by Joss. What was your initial takeaway on this episode as as a series finale, as a bookend? I think, I think it was quite a uh, quite a good finish to quite a weak season um, of of Buffy. Season seven was pretty terrible as a whole, but I like this not not just to end that, but to end the whole show. I mean, it gets the job done. Uh, it definitely delivers on that that the the theme of of empowerment it completes a lot of character arcs um not all of which were started obviously in the pilot um but i think quite satisfyingly brings a lot of things uh, to a close um i do have to mention in the the meta uh, i suppose there are a lot of things that are brought to a close that are then immediately brought to an open either in some other form of media or a spin-off show that kind of cheapen it a little bit, um, but I'll, I'll I'll get onto those in, uh, in in due course. I can't remember exactly watching this live at the time. I mean, I I did obviously, but I I I can't remember the, like the the exact moment. I can't remember I the can, exact uh, time. You know, we obviously sat down to. I'm pretty sure we watched it together. We would have, of course. Yeah, well, um, we were watching it. Yeah, whenever it was on, which was a, yeah, I think it was a Friday evening. I think that was fairly standard. Um. I'll I'll tell you this though, Chris. I think my initial my initial reaction. So this is back in two thousand three, was disappointment, and I think it was disappointment because, especially being younger, but but the idea of a series finale should be that it goes out uh, all guns blazing. Um, not only finishes stories, but um, leaves you on a high. It leaves you wanting more, and I think deliberately. Having again rewatched it today and sat here with my notepad and just having watched that first one, it actually makes it a great point is that you can see Joss closing the circle on the themes uh, more so than the action. So there is obviously an action, a big action set piece, but it doesn't actually begin until um, really Act Three. Mm-hmm. 
the the start of it is is wrapping up the episode before with Nathan Fillion and then getting into the, the setup. But actually, everything that happens has a purpose. It's not just setup and, and plot. It's it's trying to wrap up these characters, throwing in a few moments of of character development and character finalization, especially for Buffy, that she has to kind of come full circle, that she has to um, she has to finish her journey as it were, which she does at the end. Yeah. So on reflection, after watching it, I was actually a lot, uh, a lot more impressed. Yeah. With the episode now than I probably was at the time. Can I can I ask? Because obviously we had this discussion briefly in the last episode about how you avoided watching this, um, for ages when when you had your last sort of rewatch through Buffy. Um, did you literally just enjoy the episode? Like, by itself, did you enjoy what you watched? Um, I, I, I did to an extent. I did to an extent. I, I, yeah. I think one of the things with, with an episode like this is if you just sit down and watch it and you have certain expectations that that they can sometimes get lost. Whereas I think Welcome to the Hellmouth, you sat down, it was a great introduction. You didn't have to think about it because nothing had been established. Uh-huh. Uh, in this one, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're into the well-worn Buffy trope of season-long stories, plot lines, big bads. And it has to get resolved. And you, it has to. Oh, it has to be bigger. It has to be bigger than Buffy sacrificing herself um, in season five. It has to be bigger than you know the 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 mayor um, and and all the other uh, seasons. I'm struggling now to think of each one of them. So probably sure as I should rewatch the entire season, uh, entire series. Yeah, well, you had you had the mayor. You had Adam. You had uh, Glory, obviously. In, in season of five. course of course so in season six life was the big bad oh jeez season six right okay uh, we'll, we'll... see season six was the big bad the, the whole thing. <laughs> I, d- I just think you know speaking about the, the show as a whole I, I do think it got weaker when they left school because school was such a great unifying factor for them all and for the character and for us as as, as watching but of course as we grew up they grew up um i just felt that when when Buffy had to become a real person outside, because her whole story is about becoming a real person. It lost I don't some mean of a real person, but becoming an adult. Yeah. And this weight of responsibility and trying to save the world every time. Yeah. Um, which actually I think comes to a really great thematic close at the end. It's, yeah. But again, on, in my original watching, I was very disappointed. Not very disappointed, but I was disappointed because I, I was expecting fireworks and, um, I, I guess if you describe it out loud, the town. The entire town of Sunnydale, Sunnydale slipping into a sinkhole yeah. should be pretty damn big, but it didn't feel that way on screen um, for one reason or yeah. another. But certainly, I think thematically, you know, sitting down and watching it again, having my little notebook and everything, yeah. <laughs> um, certainly it, it, it was a lot better, I think, watching it that way than just watching it and, and expecting to be... Yeah. Uh, entertained the first time i think i think it's just my expectations more than the actual episode itself which disappointed yeah definitely okay well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it more this time anyway um part of the reason i enjoyed rewatching welcome to the hellmouth is like it's like oh we're back in sunnydale high and everyone's young and oh, it's just a bit of fun and uh oh, it's it's it makes you feel warm you know even that library set being in that library set you know i just i love it and i like you know, I like when they moved on and and did bigger and and better things. And there's some fantastic stuff post season three. You know, after they've left school. Um, but yeah, you know, the older they get and the more it just becomes about oh, geez, isn't life depressing? That becomes a bit too real. Like you know, 
You know, I, don't, mm-hmm. I get the Buffy's dealing with bills. I think yeah. you have to commend them for that because it's it's difficult. You know, they they had an easy show where they're all teenagers um, in school, and then they have to deal with with growing up, and that's the hardest part at all. And they deal with it in different ways, and some might say quite unrealistic ways, but is a show about vampires, so you know, yeah, you go with it. But this ep- this episode does a great job of tying everything back. So first of all, if you didn't know what this this show is about. It smacks you right at the start, where where Jacob, played by Nathan Fillion, um, has the final fight that he will have with um, what he calls Bitch Girl, which is Buffy. And if you don't, again, you didn't know what this was about, you don't have the balls, he says. Yeah. He's like, it gets a bit thick with the metaphors, you know, and he slices... Yeah, yeah I, I... She slices him in half <laughs> scythe through the groin. Yeah, it's very on the nose that little scene is it's fun in its way because it's a little it's almost a little microcosm of of what the show is it's like here's this big misogynistic man trying to trying to put down a woman um and you know she sort of gets the better of him obviously quite literally slices uh slices through his nutsack um lovely way of putting it chris but you're absolutely right and and a bit of fun and i mean you gotta love nathan fillion and everything you've gotta love does. nathan fillion um, um but then on top of that there's there's angel to save the day but she doesn't need saving so and again going back to you know when i was a kid i was like oh yeah angel and buffy side by side they're gonna save the day fantastic angel's gone and yeah <laughs> that hacked me off so much because i was like it's not like you couldn't get him he was there you were using him the one <sighs> I mean, I. Uh... But again, I think this is Joss actually tying up the, thim- the the theme of the show much better. We all want Angel to fight side by side with Buffy, but what actually makes much more sense for the character is Buffy at this point has to learn how to be a real person. I don't mean a real person, but I keep saying that. But she has to be. Um, yeah. She has to grow up. She has to go alone. She can't. She, she can't rely to... on him. Um, it's kind like, of. Well, she yeah. doesn't rely on any man. It's, it's kind of the point, isn't it? Really. So she doesn't rely on Spike. Spike's not a boyfriend. He's not a a love of her life she doesn't rely on angel anymore she doesn't have a dad so she has to rely on herself and, and obviously there's a big there's a big thing with giles back in season six you know he says you're relying on me and i can't make you know you have to learn to go alone without me so i'm leaving um and then obviously when he's back they have a bit of a fracas and they kind of yeah the whole point is she's kind of outgrown him you know, I don't need you to teach me lessons anymore. I don't need you to show me the way. I know the way just fine, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's good. It's well done. I love the scene with her and Angel where she's talking about the cookie dough. Um, you know, but that's again, it's a bit of a thematic thing. It's her kind of acknowledging. It's like this isn't the this finale episode is not going to be me choosing between Angel and Spike. Like it's not like a will they, won't they, who will she end up with kind of thing. The the point is, I'm doing what I'm doing. I have to, you know. I'm not. I'm not ready to settle down and, and make that decision yet. Anyway, um, well, it'll well exactly. So between the recap, the tease, and well, actually not the recap, but but Act One. So Act One after the initial fight is she talks with Angel. She talks with Spike. We get a little throw to everyone else. Um, we have Spike's. Um, I thought fantastic line when he's having his nightmare. I'm drowning yep. in footwear. <laughs> Which was fantastic. And, <laughs> you, you you want to go into that yeah. nightmare at that point, don't you? To see what was actually happening. But I I love I love how it's also followed by one of those kind of you know again very you only really get it in these shows where he just sort of jumps up and then kind of goes like huh what an odd dream <laughs> you know 
kind of kind of calling it out, kind of saying like, you know, that's what um came back to me as I was rewatching, which I forgot the first time around was Spike. Not so much Spike, but the relationship that Spike and, and Buffy have at this point, which is very complicated, and it manifests itself in here, in which they're basically, you know, he's sleeping in the basement and she comes down, um, looking for possibly her last night of love, basically. Mm-hmm. And what, what, what did you make of that? Because I remember growing up again, teenager hormones, all that stuff. That um, the whole Spike relationship came as a bit of an eye opener for me. Um, Again, I guess I, I know exactly where Joss was trying to go with it now, but how did you feel about it rewatching this mm-hmm. and seeing him living in the basement again and, mm-hmm. and how they, they how basically they interacted for the whole episode? I think, I mean, I, I, I like the way they tie things up in this episode with, with them. I think you and I specifically kind of jaded to the whole Spike Buffy thing from season six because it was just so much with the, for, you know, network television, quite graphic sex scenes quite frequent a little needless at times um so we were kind of very much over that and when spike kind of came back again and they were kind of getting back into it i think i was certainly quite fatigued (laughs) um and i think whenever i'm watching it i do get a bit fatigued with that relationship because season seven is just full of like oh i don't know do you like him do you not does he like you does he not what's what's the state of play what's kind of going on it is a bit wearying when you're watching it, but that scene in specific, I think, is done quite well. Um, again, the actors have great chemistry together, and and that that's really what sells it. You know, it's that kind of. I'd agree with that, and but of course, at this point, we're watching after seven seasons, so they've had a, mm-hmm. a long time to build. The actors up have everything. had a lot of time to to get there. Um, Although I think after all these years, his British accent doesn't quite hold up as much as I thought it did. No. And that's another accent that changes a lot throughout the show. Um, he kind of fluctuates. I loved his angel punching bag. Well, yes, anything involving him and angel. And and it speaks to that. And it's that's one of the great, you know, there's so many great little relationships, but, you know, how they can't stand each other and their constant rivalry being played out through Buffy. And her, again, just saying, like, I'm over it. I'm sick of listening to you two talking about this just move on so talking about being in being unable to stand something let's talk about kennedy 16 minutes eight seconds that's when she first appeared oh um, you wrote it down was that for me that's for you because i fucking raged out when i remembered she was in it i'd oh i was enjoying it i was sitting there making little notes like love the characters you know just seeing Alison hannigan from series one to series seven She's still got that core willowness, even though she's become more confident and she's been through a lot and she's had some changes and got to love Zandman and Giles. And then Kennedy pops up on screen, 16 minutes, 8 seconds, I paused it. And I just remembered it all came flooding back. Oh, that whole season of just this. And she actually has like some lines later in the episode talking about how she's a little bit annoyed, bratish, actually. She calls herself a brat. She's an unbearable Oh. <laughs> oh, just do, do you know what? After the Willow's arc is in many ways amazing, right? And that she obviously for, for so many reasons, um, and then she has the love of her life uh, taken away from her in true Joss Whedon style, right? A, a random bullet that <laughs> goes through a window and and kills um, what's the character's name, Chris? I'm forgetting now. Tara. Tara, of course. Tara kills Tara 
in her arms, like just as blunt as you would like. And then this, she's not even an imitation. She's not even nothing like her. And she, I just felt watching it at the time, and I still feel it now, that it was just, oh, they're all these potential slayers. They're all women. How about one of them fancies Willow? And that was it. And I just, I just did, didn't get along with it. I didn't like the character. I didn't particularly thought she yeah. brought much to it, except for my blood r- levels rising throughout the whole episode. She, she's horrible, and it's not like I, I can, I can be an apologist for a lot of things. And like I've, I've said to you before, how in like in Star Trek: The Next Generation, like I quite like Wesley Crusher. Um, I don't find him that annoying, except for a few, you know, <laughs> a few key moments. But Kennedy just has no redeeming features to me. I'm sure there's corners of the internet weird some do dark corners where there's actually people that think she's she's an enjoyable character to watch but she's just an unbearable bitch at this point we should uh, we should <laughs> tell the audience that uh, if you're in a weird dark corner of the internet hit us up on itunes and give us a five-star review hopefully you're enjoying us tearing into this character that you love give us a five-star review for your favorite new podcast yeah no she's she's terrible she's horrible she has no redeeming features she's not funny She's not cool. I don't like what she does for Willow's character particularly. Um, she's full of just lines like, oh yeah, I could get used to this. Um, they just make you want to shake Joss and say, like, did you forget how to write whenever she came on screen? Like, whenever you were writing for Kennedy, I'll, I'll just write in cliches and, and hateful. Well, it's interesting that you said <sighs> that. Why, why, why like Kennedy her. and all that? So I didn't decided not to read up too much around these episodes to kind of pull out some Wikipedia facts on you or anything, but certainly in the very uh, next scene we get, or actually the same scene, we get reintroduced to Principal. There's another Principal of the school. Robin Wood. Robin Wood. And uh, he's moving boxes with Faith and they have a little character moment. And of course I'm reminded, because it tells you in the, the episode, that they boned too. Yeah. They boned. And Verily boned. did they bone. And everyone in this episode at this point is either coupled up or has boned each other at this point. After seven years, I think that was like the biggest te- takeaway from this episode. <laughs> Everybody. Oh. Everybody's at it. I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense. Um, they've touched on that once or twice before, but it's that whole like impending apocalypse, end of the world, like shack up with someone kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, and obviously, you, you don't really get much of the story. It's, it's obviously been dealt with in the previous episodes, but obviously Xander and Anya, after sort of an estrangement, are looking like they're finally about to... They are, are pretty much finally back together. I think just in the previous episode or a few before, maybe they sort of slept together again as well. Yeah, of course. Of course they did. I mean, what did, what did you think about that? That's skipping on a little bit, but I think important for for how the end of the show. So again, Anya, an episode... Uh, sorry, a character who wasn't introduced in the, the first episode, but she becomes a core part of the show as the show goes on. And she is the biggest character to die. I mean, Spike, we know, doesn't really die. Uh, he comes back. Yeah. Anya's the yeah. only one who doesn't really come back, I believe. Certainly from my canon watching, if not the comic books and everything else. No, which are canon. But yes, um, no, oh, Chris, Anya no. never comes back. Never comes back. We're not going into the comic books. But how did you feel about Anya's death? such as it was it's it's crushing it's it's horrible and it's it's done very well um you know they've they've done what they always do they've they've built a character up they've made you absolutely love them and then they've torn them away and you know again they do it in this way where it's not like there's a big moment there's a big showdown it goes a certain way 
someone sneaks up behind her and slices her in half and it's done in a second and you can't quite um believe it's just happened and i actually literally was in denial about this when we watched it on tv it happened so fast i missed it and i and i was like nah she's gonna be all right and it was blink and you miss it it's just sword down that was it and then at the very end you see her lying there and and xander's trying to find her but can't find her and joss even denies you that he doesn't give you you that moment of having him sort of mourn over her corpse or you know, it's a very Joss Whedon thing to do, and again, it's another thing playing upon your expectations, where you expect they're, they're going to be big bloody heroes at the end of this episode, and not only is Angel not involved, but yeah, people who do die do not get their moment, which um, I don't know if I like it or not. I mean, I can understand where Joss was going with it. I kind of wanted that moment, but at the same time, I didn't actually want Anya to die. So you know, it's, so it's, it's kind of it's kind of what I love about him, though, like because. No, even today, no one else really does it the way he does it. Um, yeah, characters are killed off in a way that is entirely realistic, which is to say they don't get a big moment. They don't get a big last hurrah and goodbye. Quite often, they just die um, because that's how death happens. You don't tend to see it coming. Um, that's true. Things have to have consequences. You want to have a massive battle where you go to war? People have to die. So obviously, he was going to kill off a bunch of the Slayer flunkies you know, some of whom had names and personalities that died. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but not Kennedy. Unfortunately, not Kennedy. I was praying. I remember when we were watching it, I was livid that she got on the bus. <laughs> <I was laughs> like, why couldn't she, she have had an off-screen death? Right? Um, because at the end, by the way, Xander's not that cut up about it. Like, he is, but he does not showing anything. Well, you know what? I actually, I disagree with you a little bit there. Um, I actually thought that was a nice, subtle bit of work from Nicholas Brandon. Um, when he has that moment with Andrew where he's sort of, you know, asking him what happened, and he says, oh, you know, she was brave, and she saved my life. You know, he does a little bit of a, a Captain Kirk lip wobble, you know? Um, <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't just break down and start bawling his eyes out, but, you know, he, he definitely has a moment, I think, and is sort of clearly trying to hold it together. Um, I was very sad. I was very sad when he killed Anya, but that's 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 the Whedon way. That's what you buy into when you go into his universe. No one's safe. Um, and, yeah, big things like this will always have consequences. People will always die or get, you know, injured. Obviously, Xander loses an eye. That actually shocks me almost more than anything else that ever happened in the show. That was one of the more shocking moments of Season 7. Um, but going back onto this idea of um, the, the the general theme that holds across the, the all seven seasons, which is uh, female empowerment and as well as Buffy's kind of weight responsibility... Something I thought was interesting when I was watching it today, and I'm watching it, and Willow does her, um, this is now into Act 3, and Willow has her Oh My Goddess moment, and she's creating all the potential, you know, we go back to the speech. You know, Buffy loves the speech, and thankfully, mercifully, Joss cuts it up. Though, because actually, it's one of the better ones. It's not too rah rah, and it's not too. There downbeat. are a lot of garbage speeches in this season <laughs> that are very hard to watch. That that was another thing in season seven. That's probably why I didn't watch the final episode again. Was I thought, oh, yeah, geez, it's like I speech. cannot take one more speech. Oh man. So, but it, when they go back to the speech and they talk about obviously the plan, which was obviously very much all men versus women. Uh, so why don't we just give the power to all women? What did you think about this? 
So I'm watching it, and they're talking about, you know, basically empowering women. They're, they're going to bestow these powers across all potential slayers, and you see, like, a little montage of girls and women standing up for themselves, hitting home runs and baseball and all sorts. And I was just thinking, just thinking, well, hang on. It's only the potential slayers. So what? Like, what about the other women? <laughs> well, 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 but more than yeah. that. So um, it's almost as if saying, like, we, we know, these women need a magical power to stand up for themselves. Obviously, that's not what the episode's trying to drive at. But it, it kind of sat. I'm not a woman, hopefully, obviously, but it kind of feels odd. You know, there's two. Here we are, two white guys talking about all sorts of things. We're talking about female empowerment. I'm sure there are ladies listening here saying, what do you know about that? So I'm, I'm loath to go too deep into it to sound like I'm an expert or even that I should have a problem with it. But I just found it very interesting that it was about empowering women, but it was only to a select group, to these potentials. And my, my first feeling was, well, what about everybody else? But maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into that. I think, obviously, in terms of the, the theme, you know, the literal speech that Buffy's giving, you know, it comes across as... Yeah, basically being like, I want to empower all women in the world. Uh, and that's kind of where Joss is coming from. And it's quite, you know, there's been quite evident throughout the show that that's that's what he's driving at. It is, from a canon perspective, like you say, it's a bit like, well, it's a select group of women who you're empowering. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's, you know, it's... and. It just so happens in that montage that we see that all the potential slayers are sort of girls with no confidence and wives who are getting beaten. Yeah, and, like the the woman like who's that. obviously standing up for herself from her abusive husband. You know, it's it's. It, I mean, it's interesting. You know, it's like does does she need this power to stand up? And it's obviously it's a very difficult situation. There are people who are abused every day, which is a terrible situation. You never want to see. Um, I just wonder whether it's maybe making slightly light of it by saying, "Well, don't worry, he's a magical power. You can stand up for yourself." Okay, yeah, and I take I take your point. I think, to be honest, I think what what needs to happen there is that montage needs to just be ripped right out. You know, Buffy doesn't say every beaten woman who can become a potential slayer will will be all right. You know, it's it's all told through the pictures. So either it needs to be a different kind of montage, or that just needs to go. You know, because that's the problem. Yeah, I'm just wondering. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. I, I just found it, I just found it interesting. I just found it interesting that the show is obviously about uh, female empowerment, and I just felt with because it was relating it to a superpower more than anything that that maybe just makes light of certain situations in the world. But maybe I'm reading too much into that. And certainly, you know, moving on now to the scale of the episode stands out. So although it's not got the biggest budget and you know this is 2003 not 2017 so tv has certainly moved on even now but certainly the scale of this episode stands out if anything by the sheer numbers of people on screen the the uber vampires who you know come up from from the from below sunnydale high yeah um it's certainly a, a larger scale episode but it's still dealing with the same themes as as the pilot which is uh, Buffy's role in the world and, and female empowerment, which was, which was really strong to me. It was a lot stronger than I thought it was going to be connected across both episodes. I got goosebumps. <laughs> I'm being serious. I was when which I was watching it. She was. It's when Buffy's Buffy's just been sort of stabbed, and she's she's down on the floor. She's kind of struggling. She sees a couple of slayers getting getting killed, and the the first sort of turns up to give her a bit of a jibe, um, and and she sort of stands up and says something along the lines of get out of my face 
Um, Rhonda throws her the axe, and then sort of the music swells, and and we have just like yeah, a big sort of almost that's almost sort of the climactic end of that battle scene because from that point on, Spike's thing starts going, and then the sort of um. But that that bit, like literally every time I watch it, I get goosebumps. No, it's 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 definitely you know it's certainly a grand. You know, we talk about changing expectations and having expectations, and and Joss kind of twisting them, or or maybe the director in some cases twisting them. In this case, he's both. Um, and certainly in this one, he kind of gives you what you want, which is get off off the mat, the kind of the rocky moment of I'm going to get up. Although of course it's the first saying, oh, it's a mortal wound. It's like, well, obviously it's not mortal because one, she's Buffy, and two, she, it doesn't kill her. She gets up. <laughs> it yeah. is. But it kind of feels like this is the last time that Buffy has to do this, you know, that she's down, she sees that everybody else is, you know, the tide is kind of turning at that point. And that she kind of, after talking to the first, summons the strength to kind of get up once more and, and turn the, the tide of battle again. Although that said, what wins the day? It's Spike's amulet. I think we had a bit of a sort of a crossing of wires almost as far as not so much themes went, but I think theme on one side and arc on the other. Um, because as as you've said quite rightly, and, and this is something I did want to get onto, Spike's Spike's arc finishes here, and then it just goes on a bit <laughs> after the fact, and and it's a kind of perfect finish to him. And much as I absolutely love James Masters and love his character, I do have to say probably the best thing for his character would have been to to end here, because you know he starts off as a bad guy, one of the worst, most horrible vampires. You know, he gets the chip. He, you know, we we get into a lot of very interesting themes about well, what makes him evil. You know, can you actually condition an evil thing to be good? And they kind of do, and they kind of don't. He gets his soul back. He he fights for it, and he, you know, the whole of season seven is him actually coming to terms with having his soul. But you know, he's not like Angel. It's not the same kind of struggle for him. And then at the end, he sacrifices himself to save the world, to save Buffy. Uh, you know, she says, I love you, and he's like, you don't. Which like, is a nice Joss moment. I but thought. that's fine. Yeah. It's okay that you don't. We've had what we've had, and I'm, you know, I'm happy to do what I'm about to do. And he sacrifices himself. We see him literally die to save the world. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, as soon as you pop in Angel Season 5, Disc 1... There he is. He's right back in there. <laughs> yeah, just looking at this episode, it's a fantastic way to end his arc. It is a shame. And we knew watching it that he was going to come back. Um, and I'm sure I heard that in the original script, you were going to see like his hand coming out of the, that's right. sort of the rubble of Sunnydale. But obviously that's not quite how they decided to bring him back. The scene where, uh, right back at the start of the episode, where Angel gives Buffy the amulet. Um, and then he kind of like where he physically hands it to her and then kind of walks away and he turns around, makes a quick comment and walks off. Seemed goes into the shadows. Seems to quite accurately reflect their first meeting. Um I'm sure that that was yeah. not by accident, but I thought it was actually really well done and I've never actually noticed before just how much it does that with the actual blocking of it. Um and it, yeah, him sort of backing away into the shadows. Oh, blocking of it. Listen to you, Mr. Hollywood. What? Yeah. Yeah, let's talk Brecht. Let's, let's really 
let's really get into the let's really get into the theory of this because of the scale because of the scope and because it was only a 45 minute episode which a lot of things are are put in very tightly um especially when the, the city is going underground and they're they're combining the live action with the cg and the bus escaping it was a bit lastminute.com it was a bit rushed but i don't you know again we're not trying to be snarky about it it's just one of the realities of 2003 tv and um it's still a, an epic end to an epic television show but my favorite part of it um that ties it all together is that very last line which is you just got to live like a person now or um which faith i think it's faith that says the buffy and she has that kind of tear of of happiness which is exactly what she wanted in the first episode which was she wanted to live like a real person. She was, you know, you, we were saying, you know, constantly trying to get away from Giles and the library and, and the bronze. Yeah. Um, Seven years later, she finally does it. And it, that's why I think after rewatching it, that, that it really holds together uh, quite strongly and ties in with all these themes and, and callbacks, uh, which actually makes it a lot stronger of a finale than I thought, um, even just remembering it before we, we watched it today. I know you don't consider it canon. But obviously, that is also somewhat uh, <laughs> sort of somewhat sullied by uh, the comic book series that's um, that has come since. And you know, Joss Joss writes the well, he writes some of the comics. He he oversees them. He plots them, um, and they are great. And I, I I do like the story they've told. But you know, again, it sort of it bothers me a little bit to see this really nice summary. You know. Buffy's done. She's it's done. She doesn't have to, you know. She can actually just live her life a bit now, um, which is kind of what she's always wanted to be able to do. And then, yeah, she just doesn't. She takes an army of slayers up to Scotland and gets a castle. And, right. And well, maybe it should there. have just ended there. Then <laughs> I think uh, I think looking back on it, that is a perfect ending, um, or if not a perfect ending, the very very good ending. And it's terrific to see that. The first and last episodes hold together thematically um, so, well. so well. So well. So well. This has been a very successful experiment. And um, Starbucks is mentioned in both episodes. I didn't pick up on it in the second episode. I did in the first one. It's a one Starbucks town. Yeah, and in the right, like, seconds before the end of the episode, Xander says, like, he names, like, three brands. He's like, Starbucks, The Gap, something else, like, who will tell their stories? <laughs> and I, I just noticed it. I was like, oh, Starbucks gets mentioned both times. Um, okay, that's and I like to assume nothing happens by accident in in this world. And I, and I, I was I was quite happy with that. I was, uh, yeah, I had a big lump in my throat by the end of the episode. And considering that I was watching it entirely out of context, uh, you know, I think that that speaks to how how I think it's it's all about the characters. Is how much we love the characters, and yeah, you know, seeing seeing them have that moment, some of them anyway. Um, is a very very nice way to end it. Yeah, and with uh, one thing that you know we we kind of talked about what the, this as the seasons got on it got a bit darker and that um, the, the the show you know Buffy really became like heavily weighed down like really not a fun person to be around at times. Um, no, like nigh on suicide. Which was not, I guess, was not her journey. Right? Her journey was to take on this weight of responsibility, the, the weight of the world on her shoulders, literally, and to deal with it. And it was great that finally, at the end, she cracked a smile. And I don't mean that in any sort of nasty um, male way. I just mean that. <laughs> smile finally... for me, pussycat. <laughs> exactly. So, why don't you break a smile? No, I just mean that literally after seven years, her job is done. Her job is done. 
and that she can just be happy. I know you said it goes into season eight in the comics. I do not read them. I don't consider them canon. <laughs> this is the last episode, and it's great. And it's great that it wraps it up so well and ties in back to the first episode. And it's great that they, they do get to enjoy themselves a little bit by the end. Certainly seeing Sarah Michelle Gellar smile again, whereas in the first episode she's very... There is that weight as well, but she is a lot more happier, um, a lot more playful in her language that she doesn't come across necessarily as well by the time she gets to the end here. Yeah, she can just be happy. She's having to be the adult for Dawn and everything. We haven't even talked about Dawn. No, but... God, we have the whole thing without mentioning Dawn. <laughs> But to be fair, she's not a huge part of the finale. She's only in a couple of, of brief scenes. So, um, And she, of course, isn't in the first episode because she didn't exist. But I, I think a very interesting experiment, Chris, as you said, wrapped up. I was I'd delighted to go back to both episodes and, and to talk about them with you today. Yeah. Um, what are we going to do next time, Chris? Have you got any thoughts to that? I do. Well, you know I do. Um, it's, 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 my, it's my pick, as it were. Um, and so, <laughs> so this has uh, been actually quite quite difficult for me. So obviously, the the core of what we want to be doing is is sort of a bit of an exchange from time to time, and you know, me trying to pick a gap Cannot in wait. your film knowledge and and sort of find something that I think you should watch. So I had something picked, and at the last minute, I sort of um, to borrow some American football parlance, called an audible. Um, because I decided that the thing that I want you to watch that I picked already, I would actually quite like to be there when you watch it. Oh, wow. So, uh, and I can't do that sort of now. <laughs> uh, but I'm also struggling against the idea of making this too much of a masochistic, sadistic kind of thing where I make you watch things that I don't think you'll like as well. So... I'm kind of going to... This is a bit of a shot in the dark. I'm pretty sure you haven't watched this. Um, if you have, I'll have to make a last-minute change. <laughs> 100% live, folks. We have not rehearsed this. This this is the reality of it. Um, I would like you to watch the um, Jake Gyllenhaal classic, Donnie Darko. Oh, wow. Donnie Darko. Everyone has seen that film. Everyone has an opinion on it. Except me, because I've never watched it. Excellent, excellent suggestion, Chris. Well, as ever, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please go on to iTunes, subscribe, and give us a review, hopefully five stars. Follow us on Twitter at OBrotherPod, and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash OBrotherPodcast. I've been Steve, he's been Chris, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.